Our gospel reading this morning is from the gospel of Mark, the 12th chapter, towards the end. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich, rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in, into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, you, you know, throughout history, there have always been people who saw in the worship of gods an opportunity to make money. In ancient Egypt, in Greece, in Rome, there were men and women who saw in the hopes and dreams of people a chance to make a fortune by declaring that such and such a god or goddess required a great temple to be built, with a large statue of the god or goddesses to be built in the temple. In Athens, there was the temple of Athena with a huge statue of the goddess. In Ephesus was the beautiful temple of Artemis, of reproduction shows on the screen. An entire industry grew up of silversmiths who made small replicas for tourists. When the population of Ephesus began to convert to Christianity through Paul's preaching, the silversmiths went to the town leaders and had Paul thrown in prison. And in the great temple of God in Jerusalem, there were so many men who ran businesses selling sacrificial lambs and changing money and other such things that Jesus turned over their tables and chased them out with a whip. Other people have seen in the worship of gods, even in the worship of Jesus Christ, an opportunity for money and power, a chance for prestige and celebrity, a chance to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. There have always been people who announce boldly their worship of a locally popular god, such as Apollo or Baal or Jesus, and then strive for political power. And then there are those who work quietly to advance the cause of God or Christ. Our two readings today show the difference between those who would become known in this world for their mention of God and those who would be great in the kingdom of God for their humility and quiet devotion to God, to Christ, to the Holy Spirit. Our first reading speaks of the prophet Elijah. Elijah comes upon the scene in the book of 1 Kings. In chapter 17, he walks into the throne room of Ahab, the king of Israel, whose wife had brought into the country several hundred priests of the Lebanese god Baal. Elijah then announces, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And then Elijah leaves town. 
He goes into a ravine east of the Jordan River, and he stays there with ravens bringing him food, and he drank from the brook in the ravine. No great following, no great prestige. Elijah became a quiet hermit. He stayed there until the brook dried up because of the lack of rain. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, telling him to go to the tiny village of Zarephath, which was near Sidon in Lebanon, where a widow would supply him with food. He met the poor widow. She was gathering sticks to cook. She was going to cook the last meal for herself and her son because they were about to run out of flour and oil. Elijah told her not to be afraid, for God would provide for her. And miraculously, there was always flour and oil during the time Elijah stayed there. God had honored God's word. Notice that although Elijah was very opposed to King Ahab because Ahab's wife Jezebel had supported the worship of Baal, that Lebanese god, instead of worshiping Yahweh, the god of Abraham, Elijah did not seek the public spotlight. One visit, a short announcement which directly confronted Ahab's god Baal. See, Baal was the Lebanese god that supposedly controlled the weather and storms. And then Elijah disappears for several years, over three years. In fact, this is in marked contrast to those preachers today who strive to stay in the spotlight when they oppose a particular politician, like yapping small dogs who irritate the mailman as he walks by a house. Now, Elijah delivered God's words and then let God handle the day-by-day effects. Elijah understood that it is God who must be glorified, not the prophet. Well, eventually God told Elijah to directly challenge the priests of Baal to a battle of the gods on the top of Mount Carmel in front of tens of thousands of spectators. Each side built an altar and prayed to their god to light the fire on the altar sacrifice. Hundreds of priests of Baal prayed and danced and chanted all day long to no effect. Elijah then built his altar to God, poured water on it, and prayed to God. God lit the sacrifice with fire that came down from heaven. Elijah took advantage of the situation to have the large crowd kill the priests of Baal. And then because Ahab's wife Jezebel vowed revenge upon Elijah, Elijah ran into the desert, to the mountain of God where Moses had brought down the tablets of the law, once again disappearing from the spotlight and listening to the quiet whisper of God speak to him. Upon his return after finding and training Elisha, Elijah's replacement, Elijah and Elisha went out into the country, away from everybody, and Elijah was taken into heaven by a fiery chariot out in the middle of nowhere. For you see, God is due the glory, not those who speak for God. When God came to earth personally as Jesus Christ, God the Son who walked upon the earth Jesus specifically spoke about a group of Jewish teachers of the law. Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. 
they devour widows' homes, though. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men, Jesus said, will be punished most severely. Well, let's look carefully at what Jesus is critical of. He's not critical of those who teach, but of those who teach for prestige, to develop respect and honor. He's not upset because these men wear nice clothes, but because they wear these clothes for prestige, and so they'll be greeted with respect. Jesus is not upset that they make long prayers, but because they make lengthy prayers for a show. He's upset that they take money from poor widows, that they devour widows' houses. You see, it's the motive. They act good, doing things which are good and holy, teaching and praying, but they do not do these things because they are good and holy, but because they want respect and places of honor and mercy. They want the show of being good and holy. Thus, according to Jesus, these men will be punished most severely. Jesus says that God does not like people who do things for show. And I'm sure if we flip around our channels today, we'll find people who do things for show. It was in the Middle Ages, though, that this problem actually reached its peak. In Germany, in the 1400s and 1500s, entire county-sized areas were controlled not by counts, but by bishops. The land was actually owned by the bishops, and families competed to buy these lands from the leaders of the church when an older bishop died. And this was one of the issues which upset Martin Luther, the man who 504 years ago launched the Protestant Reformation of the church. He did not think that it was right to sell leadership in the church or leadership of the country. So when you think about your own life, don't do things for show. And this applies to our purchases today. How much of what we buy is for show to impress neighbors to impress family, to gain respect of people rather than God. Do you remember that commercial a few years ago where the guy talks about having a nice car and a nice house and he's got nice clothes and everything, and then they cut to him and he says, and I'm deep in debt. Remember that? He was buying things for show so that he would look as good as his neighbors. He wasn't trying to impress God. To draw a contrast after pointing out the duplicity of the teachers of the law, Jesus takes his disciples to sit near the money box where people are putting money into the temple treasury. In those days, there was no collection taken up. There was simply a large box, or as you see on the screen, there was a, there was a area there with a slot in it where you could drop your coins in. Jesus and the disciples watched, and they saw some rich people putting in very large amounts of money. In fact, they'd sometimes come up and carry big bags of money. And then this poor widow comes, and she puts in two small copper coins, essentially a pair of pennies. Jesus pointed this out to his disciples. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow's put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And it's from this teaching of Jesus 
that we get the idea that the giving of treasure to the church is to be in proportion to our income. Let me put it in comparison. Let's, let's try to use today's situation. I want you to imagine you're standing there and you're watching, and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Jeff Zuckerberg, they come into the church, and each of them, you know, they're, they're multiple, multiple billionaires. They're worth over $50 billion apiece. This slide just shows how much they've gained in the last couple years. They each put a billion-dollar check into the box. And I'll tell you, we could do a lot with, a, with just one of those checks, couldn't we? But then here comes Great Aunt Sally. She lives on minimal Social Security she puts her last $20 bill into the box, all she had left for the month. Jesus would commend great Aunt Sally, not the billionaires, for she'd put in everything she had to live on, saying she'd given far more than the billionaires, because, you see, she was choosing to depend upon God rather than upon her money. She was worshiping God by handing over what the world would say she needed for security. She trusted God. So how much should we give? In the ancient law of Moses, each person was to bring a tenth of his harvest, the first tenth of the harvest, into the temple. And this was to support the entire tribe of Levi, who were the temple priests and the local priests. But in fairness, that tenth was also to support the judges, as well as the army and the police and the king. Ten percent, one-tenth, Notice it was to be the first tenth before you actually had a good feel for what the season's harvest was going to be. And from this, many churches have adopted the idea that the ideal for everyone is to give a tenth of our income to the church. Now, should that be 10% before or after taxes? Well, if you have to ask that question, you've missed the point. For the point is that we are to assume that God will take care of us. Just as God takes care of sparrows and mice and wolves and porpoises, but shouldn't we save money for a rainy day? Only within reason. Because the more money we save for a rainy day, the more likely it is that we will depend upon our savings rather than upon God. I've told the story of my devout Christian friend. He lived very frugally. They tithed to their church. He and his wife paid off their home very early, in about 10 years, they paid off their vehicles. They set aside money for college for their children and money for retirement. Eventually, my friend's retirement account was topping a million dollars. And he was just in his late 40s, just barely reaching 50 years old. His company downsized and he was laid off. You know, a quick look at the math showed that he could live comfortably for the rest of his life just off his retirement savings. No mortgage, no car payments, and over $40,000 a year just from the interest on his retirement savings, let alone touching the principal. But he panicked. His savings account was no longer growing, so he took an out-of-town temporary job, and then he took another and another because his security revolved around the growth of that retirement account. Eventually, his wife left him and his children rejected him. He had transferred his need for security to that account rather than to God. 
Now, another view of giving is that rather than give 10% of our income, we should all be like the widow, giving away whatever we have left over. Well, probably not a good idea, although the Franciscan order of monks operate on that as a daily principle. One of their guiding principles is that they will never take a payment for work that would result in money kept until the next day. They are to hold on to nothing except a change of clothing, a place to sleep overnight, and food and drink for the next few hours, depending upon God for all daily support. Now, of course, this does set them up for trouble if they break an, a leg or an arm or get sick and can't work, and that's something we have to take into account. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, famously said, as a Methodist, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. So what's practical for today? Well, let's attempt to give about 10% of your monthly income to the church, but this is a long-term goal. If you're new up to the idea, don't panic. Instead, gradually start out with a small amount, say five bucks a week, and then as you're able to give up the useless frilly luxuries of life increase what you're giving over a period of months and years. For example, if you're spending $4 a day on coffee, consider making your own for a dollar a day, and you'll find that in a five-day week, you've saved $15, and now that $5 bill becomes a $20 bill every week. Pay off your debts. Then divert that money toward being generous to your church. Don't buy on credit for Christmas this year, and in January, you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you have available. Trust God, not your credit card. Each year, see if you can increase your giving until you reach the 10% target, and then you might even give more, more generously for special projects. Part of what we're trying to do is develop our generosity and take away from our selfishness. A large part of Christian growth, you see, is turning from a selfish look at ourselves to gradually opening up to others. When we give, we're actively saying to ourselves, self, let's be less selfish. And another part of Christian growth is a growth in our faith, in our trust that God will take care of us. Many times in my life, I've seen where we've given 20, 50, 100, even 300 dollars to someone generously, not necessarily that we could really afford it that well, but God has repaid us over the next few days or weeks. So as we give more to God and others, we're actively saying to ourselves, self, let's trust God a bit more. Let's worship God a bit more. As we move into the holy, the holy holiday season, you know, every day we're going to be given choices to make. We'll be choosing whether to give a child a, to a toy or a Christian video, like a VeggieTales video. We'll be choosing whether to give a sweater or a Bible or a devotional book or a Billy Bass singing fish. Be happy. <laughs> We'll be deciding whether to give our family a set of matching pajamas or give that money instead to the angel tree for a gift. We'll be deciding whether to go into debt or pay off debts. Will we eat at a restaurant or at home? Every day 
Every time we make these decisions, we'll be making a decision between what the world would have us do and what Christ would have us do. You may be nearly broke. And if you can't afford to give to the church, pray. Pray together as man and wife. God will grant your prayer that you can give to the church and to other people. For you are turning to God, learning to trust God, wanting to trust God. And so God will help you overcome that barrier. But never let your finances stop you from coming to this church. We'd rather see you every week for a year without you giving a single penny or two pennies than not see you at all. After all, as a church, we've been through COVID and God's been good to us. Today we have several more people with us who were not here before the first lockdown. God honors those who do God's will and we expect that to continue. Remember to pray and to ask God for God's will before you make your decisions about what to buy and what to give, when to go in debt and when to pay off debt, whether to go for the show and whether to go for sacrifice. And if you're one of those who's been listening to us on Facebook or on the radio or receiving our sermons, consider your worship. Consider a small donation to support these ways we have been reaching out to you. On our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org, you'll see the word give in the top middle of the screen. If you click on that, you'll find a page where you can consider making a one-time or a recurring donation of an amount of your choice. In the meantime, continue to worship through presence, through treasure, through your time, through your gifts. And those gifts are sometimes monetary and sometimes they are the gifts that God has given you to use on the behalf of the church. God has given us gifts, and today we will join in one of those gifts, the gift of Holy Communion. <clears throat>